Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Uh, this episode, we're finishing up Houses Under the Sea by Caitlin R. Kiernan. This story was originally published in 2006 in the Mammoth Book of Best New Horror, Volume 18. We read it, of course, in the very best of Caitlin R. Kiernan. And this is uh, our second episode here on this story. This is the discussion episode, so I think we can pretty much just get straight into it. But before we do, I do want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what keeps the show going, and we're so grateful for it, and we're, we're so glad to have you with us. We really appreciate your support on Patreon. It does help us immensely uh, keeping this project and the podcasts alive at Clay Temple Media. Well, all right, Brendan, let's uh, let's go. I think we're both extremely eager, extremely excited to talk more about this story and to, to talk about some of the, the puzzles and mysteries as, as well as the, the craft. So let's, let's get into it. Yeah, let's get to it. This story is pretty straightforward, I think. And in true weird fiction style, it leaves the reader with a deep sense of mystery, more questions than answers. Mostly, though, I'm just impressed with the number of literary genres that Kiernan is working with to tell the story. She's using uh, journalism really the genres of like profile or expose journalism, detective fiction, weird fiction, uh, the trope of the lost weekend, literary criticism, social science, <laughs> nonfiction, all of these things work to get work together to get the story across. Uh, and, and before I ask you a question about that, yeah, there are a lot of puzzles and mysteries and we're going to kind of intertwine a lot of the discussion uh, with puzzles and mysteries and craft and how everything is really working together. But the first question I want to ask is, do you, do you see any other genres or tropes in this story that jump out to you that Kiernan has just packed into Houses Under the Sea? I think what I love most about the way that she's playing with genre in this story is that she's combining fictional genres with non-fictional genres. She, she's, she's, she's combining uh, different types of, of storytelling with then also different types of, of academic or, or maybe pseudo-academic writing as well as journalism. And that is a feat that we just don't even see attempted very often. And I'm glad to see her do this. But of course, we should point out that she herself is a, a scholar or, or a professional scientist, or at least has worked as a professional scientist before she turned to writing fiction full-time or mostly full-time. So Kiernan has had one foot in both of these worlds before as well, and presumably sees her interests actually intertwined. And I think that we're getting that in this story. That's kind of the story of my life as well. Uh, reading all of this pseudoscience, like Von Daniken and Velikovsky, uh, might even put Joseph Campbell in that category, to be honest. And also then reading Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft and then also a bazillion Dragonlance novels all really at the same time played a large role in shaping who I have become as a person, who I've become as a, an adult. And that seems to be one of the motifs here in this story, or at least it's one of the ways that it really resonated with me. Yeah, I really wonder what effect the use of these genres has on the storytelling or what the effect, what effect really what the effect of the combination of these genres really leaves you with. I mean, what is Kiernan aiming at in your mind by combining all these genres and tropes? 
It certainly is a lot. Uh, and that's not something I think I ever complain about. One of the real joys that I get out of reading is playing the game of Spot the Illusion. This is something we go to Gene Wolfe for. I love when writers are aware of their place in the long tradition of writing, aware of the, the, the place of their own stories in the long tradition of story writing, maybe I should say. And work with that, right? And find ways to self-consciously draw on those traditions and to make allusions to them. That's something I really very much love. But I think here, you know, thinking about this as a craft question, like what is Kiernan trying to do? What's the effect that she's drawing on here? I think one of the things that she's really trying to do is get us to think about all these Lovecraft stories that we've read, the, the the real classics, right? The Call of Cthulhu and The Shadow Over Innsmouth, and then also Dagon as well, which is kind of adjacent to uh, both of these stories, to invoke those stories and to insert her story into that mythos, into uh, maybe not necessarily the Cthulhu mythos, but the, the Dagon mythos for sure. And to do all of that really just through these illusions without ever really spelling that out for us. Because I think that one of the things that she's definitely doing is setting this story in a world in which H.P. Lovecraft himself never existed. That even though his contemporary, Hemingway, uh, and, and Steinbeck, I suppose as well, his contemporaries did exist, Lovecraft didn't exist in this world because we, this has to be a world in which the things that Lovecraft wrote about are real. And at least that's my sense of it. Yeah, I think so. They're part of some larger historical record or mythology or folklore, not created by the mind of H.P. Lovecraft, but things that are discoverable in the world and have the same sort of draw that the mysteries of ancient civilizations have for minds that write about what you know is referred to as kind of fringe science or fringe <laughs> theory or comparative mythology and things like that. I agree with you. This story to me feels as though it's written in a world that Lovecraft does not exist in, but his literature, his, uh, his oeuvre somehow communicated something real about the world. I think it's an, a marvelous effect. And so what we're left with is the world of this story being immersed in these kinds of real mysteries about the past, about mythology, about folklore, questions that demand an answer that aren't just a work of creative fiction in order to buy that somebody has written in order to buy more cans of meat uh, in order <laughs> to feed themselves with. And I think that that's just a wonderful touch to this story. I also felt that this is an exceptional work of postmodernism as well. This ability to freely choose between multiple genres that are so well outlined and categorized and jumble them together into a genre piece that really leaves the genre that it's written in or it expands upon it that it's a statement almost that says yes weird fiction is this it does have these characterizations but also I can write it from this perspective. I can put this person in this situation, and it doesn't have to be the same old story that we get. I can use subjectivity. I can have a journalist struggling with alcohol alcoholism, writing an expose, kind of living this expatriate life in the United States. I can recognize that in the world of this main character, 
there are detective novels and people read detective novels as well as nonfiction books and really just drawing on the full archive of literature that a character might be exposed to that might help them explain some mysterious circumstance that they're caught up in. It's really that picking and choosing from the archive of human history that to me is a hallmark of postmodern fiction. Um, it doesn't mean that it's meaningless or subjectivity can't carry its own weight. It's this choice of pulling from all of these genres and tropes in order to situate the character in the real world or what feels like the real world to us. And and not just the variety of genres, but also the the way in which we get stories as material objects, material artifacts in the in the world. Right? We are exposed to uh, we are exposed to almost every way that a person could get stories in in two thousand six or, or or so when this story was published. We've got people uh, reading physical copies of books, uh, but I think it's also really important that the reason that our narrator has ever read Jacova Angevin's book in the the first place is that he was in an airport, right? This is an airport book in some way, which is maybe not something we think about too much, but that his choices were, were limited. Uh, and this is what he, this is what he got, right? So that's really interesting. We have him reading old copies of Theo Angevin's books. We have him reading newspapers. We have actual newspaper clippings that he's looking at, but then we also have him using the, the nascent internet to read newspaper stories as well, or news articles. And then we have him getting news from television also. So all of these material ways that we encounter story in our life are also present here in this work. And I think that's also a part of what she is doing, which is exploring the way that we engage with information and maybe the way that information engages with us as well. That's definitely a big part of the story, especially with the three versions of the tape, the one that was released to news stations, the slightly more unedited one that floats around the internet, and then the absolutely uncut version, which is exists only as a VHS tape, uh, <laughs> which is such a good trope of our contemporary sense of horror or weird fiction, is, uncut, is discovering some lost piece of information on an outdated bit of technology. Uh, there, there's a kind of discomfort and uncanniness and horror with the artifact of the VHS tape and what it could have captured and uh, and what and what it could have captured and what uh, could be on it that other forms of dispersal can do away with through editing and things like that. She's looking at the news culture of editing stories as well. And maybe the demands of the storyteller or the person who's discovered the story in the first place with the hanging, with the hanging of the guy who first, uh, who first disseminated the tape, who tried to sell it with the struggle of the narrator to come to terms with his own story, his inability to tell his own story, and then the profiteering of the storyteller at the end who gives us information about the origin of Jacova, of her death and resurrection under the sea. These three levels of storytelling and what the motivations are behind the storytelling are also part of the question of postmodernism is, can we trust these institutions to reliably give us information if we can expose their motivations and the reasoning behind it? 
these layers of information, these layers of story, and also all of this existing in a material way in the fictional universe of the story is also a central conceit, a central part of the Call of Cthulhu as well, which is a story that is told to us by a narrator who is investigating, who is uncovering information that he really only has access to through an inheritance and is getting you know newspaper clippings and journals and is trying to collate all of this information and make and make sense of it. And that is essentially what Kiernan has done here as well. And so that's just another way in which she's engaging with Lovecraft's masterpiece, Lovecraft's magnum opus here as well. And there are parts of the way that Lovecraft writes about these things that also invoke government conspiracies and cover-ups and the sense that not only is there a cosmos out there that we don't understand and that is indifferent to us, but that there are powers in our own world that seek to hide things from us, that seek to prevent things from us. That is all stuff that is there in The Call of Cthulhu and also The Shadow over Innsmouth, uh, among other places. But I'm not sure how frequently that is picked up from Lovecraft. And it's really cool to see Kiernan doing that here. Yeah, it's really great. And and it's also I also want to point out the way that she uses allusions in this story. They're not your typical uh allusions to classical literature or other major works that have influenced her. They're allusions that range in popular culture from songwriting to poetry to film. There's references to the Beatles, to REM, T.S. Eliot, <laughs> Uh, movie loosely based on a Hemingway novel to have and have not. What are these references doing in the story in your mind? How do they add or, or detract from the story if they detract at all? For me, they definitely do not detract, though. I can see some readers bouncing off of the sheer density of allusions here. I, I could see someone, I could see someone being distracted by that in some way, but for me, they really enhanced the the story. One, they create a reality effect, right? We live in a world that is extremely noisy. We live in a world that is just getting noisier by the day, right? As the, the internet is essentially just taking over our whole brains and our consciousnesses exist in this jumble of, of noise that we've just got things going on all around us. I mean, in the, the, the physical sense of actual noise, but then also just in the sense of the busyness of our minds as things are happening. This is how we encounter the world. We almost encounter the world, uh, you know, in some ways, almost as memes, right? That we are experiencing the world through the lens of the things that we ourselves have experienced previously, but then also the way that other people have experienced them in stories that we've told or songs that we've heard and so on. I like that Kiernan makes this self-conscious on the, the, the page here. And I think that this goes hand in hand also with the frequency with which she is invoking brand names as well, that she's just looking at the way that our lives are busy and noisy here in the 21st century. I think that's going on as well. And I love how all of these references are somehow relevant and jumbled up with the character's memories of whatever situation he's in or whatever desire he has. You're absolutely right to point out how these are memes, essentially. They are bits of cultural information that the narrator is translating or maybe transliterating in a sense into his memory, into his stream of consciousness about what's going on, what's been going on as he's trying to free write this story, as he's trying to force this story out of himself. I am sometimes a person who is uh, 
I'm a person who sometimes suffers from like audience embarrassment when I see contemporary references <laughs> in stories. Um, it, it doesn't happen often. And, and sometimes I think, boy, when these things are used, when contemporary references are used, it's, it's a history of now. And you can see like 20 or 30 years or 40 years from now, if, if some of these stories or novels are still in print and remembered, they're going to be cultural artifacts of the time that they're written. And it's something in some forms of writing that I try to get up to, to keep in mind that the characters are caught up in their own histories and their own understanding of the world. They have their own historical references to pull on or their own literary, literary illusions that they think of. But at the same time, they're living in a history of the now. And I, you know, in particular, I, I always think of the uh, Nicholson bait, of the Nicholson Baker novels, The Anthologist and Traveling Sprinklers, uh, which are fantastic, and I recommend them to our audience, they're full of this kind of history of now contemporary illusions. I mean, there's links to YouTube videos in the the books (laughs) because the main character is uh, not really getting up to anything in his life and is avoiding real work. And so watches YouTube videos as he's trying to, you know, suss out uh, the next course of action for himself. And that I feel that like embarrassment, but I'm also like, this is what people do. This is how they live their life. And I think the way that Kiernan rolls these into the story and gives them the weight that we would give to other illusions, you know, if they were 100 or 200 years old, really works for this story. They do not detract at all. And in fact, I, I found great pleasure in looking up a lot of these and kind of, you know, listening to REM while I was reading this story. <laughs> it's interesting to me that you've you've characterized these illusions as now, because I think the one that's the most recent, the one that is chronologically closest to the writing of this story is the REM album, Out of Time. It's my second favorite REM record, by the way, uh, which is still 15 years prior to this story. I mean, most of the illusions are 80 years prior to the publication of this story. Uh, then we get the Beatles songs that are 40 years prior to this story. So so I don't know that those really count as as references to the, the now, but I do think it says something about us that we both encounter them that way. We both have Hemingway and Steinbeck on our shelves. Uh, I do listen to R.E.M. I listened to Automatic for the People the other day. Uh, my wife, Elizabeth, is frequently singing Beatles songs to our baby to help him fall asleep. So these are a part of my everyday quotidian culture, but they're not are historical now. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. It, de- it definitely does say more about us and, and maybe our age or the <laughs> right. time we grew up in the in the glory days of the 90s that all of these things were combined together. You know, the Beatles and R.E.M. were playing contemporaneously on the radio. But what's the radio now? I mean, <laughs> you know, we can right. we can literally choose anything to listen to online. We don't really own our artifacts of music that much. You know, digital copies or streaming services are the norm. And essentially, we live in a world where we just pay rents to everything that we have access to rather than owning anything. I think that's going to continue to be the case. And 
So you're right to point out that it's not really a history of the now. I think our history of now is, is vastly different. Uh, I'm certain that the narrator of this story has, has a copy of Out of Time on his, <laughs> you know, in his shelf or maybe on his, uh, you know, four gigabyte iPad, iPod or whatever he's got going on. Uh, and definitely copies of T.S. Eliot books and, and, uh, he's seen to have and have not or read the novel. All of these things are in his mind and, they're not contemporary anymore. If they are contemporary, they're not present, uh, maybe in this cultural moment. And even some of the, the the structure of this novel, you know, you pointed out that this has a lot of parallels with House of Leaves, which is definitely something we should try to to do as a stretch goal for sure. I have only read that book once. I've been too scared to ever go back to it, but it looms large in my imagination. But even that you know, predates this story by almost 10 years, right? That came out in was that 1999 or 2000, something like that. So it's still even a few years uh, predates uh, predates Houses Under the Sea. Right. And, and one more thing about these pop culture references, as I pointed out, they're, to me, an effect of the frequency illusion that because the narrator's mind is so caught up, is stuck even in the trauma of the events of his relationship with Jakova, of the things he's uncovered in the meantime, and of the witnessing on television of the deaths of these people, or at least their march into the sea of something he was very close to, but wasn't present for, but he's present in this new way, that this is an attempt for his mind to recognize all these other places in his culture, in his popular culture, in his contemporary culture, where this sort of stuff might have been mentioned, and he's missed it. He just was asleep at the wheel. And now the fact that he's aware that this could be real, that the this underwater cult, the mermaids might, might be real or krakens or hydra or whatever, these references are all he thinks about. They're all he sees in his experience of this music. It's totally reframed his encounter with his contemporary culture. Right. I, I was joking in the, the last episode about seeing Ringo Starr as a weird fiction writer, but maybe the, what the narrator is doing is seeing Ringo Starr as a member of the, the, the cult of Dagon, as a member of the esoteric order of, of Dagon in the fictional world of this story. Yeah, it's entirely possible. There's a lot more going on in this story. I mean, we kind of started big and, I, and, I'm, winning on, and I'm winnowing us down a little bit uh, before we get to talk about the story, because what I'm in love with in this story is the craft, is the style of writing, is this technique that Kiernan is using. But we're going to keep moving deeper into the story here. And, and what I want to ask next is about the narrator's profession and particularly his investigative journalism into the events surrounding the global war on terror, uh, Pakistan's political struggles, and uranium enrichment program and military coups. Why do you think Kiernan chose to have the narrator engaged in this profession, particularly caught up with these issues? Do, do you think it's more than adding a reality effect to the story? Or do you think it bears on the meaning of the story, the themes of the story. I do think that chiefly this is a reality effect, but I do also think that there's a way in in which this does strike a chord with the the the, the other themes and motifs that are, are are going on here. That 
the the world of of 2005 2006 right this world of of this world still dealing with the aftermath of 9/11 was a pretty scary and chaotic time I, th- I think it's hard for a lot of us to remember that because we're dealing with new scary and chaotic times now but there was a real fear that terrorist attacks like 9-11 were going to continue to happen in the United States. They were continuing to happen in other places around the world, Spain and uh, in the UK uh, were were two big ones, for example. And there was a real genuine fear that Al-Qaeda had gotten their hands on nuclear weapons. And if they had done so, it probably had come through uh, Pakistan as the the origin point. Governments were trying to figure this out. And obviously, investigative journalists were also trying to figure this out. And this was a a matter of grave concern. And I think this can link up with a couple of things that are more in the the foreground of the the, the story. Uh, One of them is thinking about the the Velikovsky affair, thinking about the, the Bronze Age collapse, the collapse of civilization as a kind of explanation of an apocalypse, an, ex- an explanation of a post-apocalyptic culture, of a, a society putting itself back together after a real catastrophe and not even remembering what the world was actually like beforehand, of misremembering things, of myth- mythologizing of mythologizing all of that culture and not forget and and then and therefore forgetting the technological sophistication of this society, the civilization that was destroyed. Uh, Velikovsky at some point does also posit that we were actually that humans are actually from outer space. This is you know the whole Battlestar Galactica thing owes itself, I think, to uh, Velikovsky uh, specifically, uh, maybe von Daniken a little bit as well, but Velikovsky I think more directly. And we can maybe draw some parallels there that this is a that at this time there was a, a real chance that there were going to be nuclear weapons used all around the globe. The conflict between Pakistan and India, both recently armed with nuclear weapons, was something that was escalating at this time as well. And so there was a lot of fear there. And I think that that we can see that linking up. But then also, I think this links up with the religious movement that Jakova Angevin is leading here, that she is preaching to and she is preaching to her congregants here preaching to people she is trying to convert to her religion that what she is offering them is a place of peace under the sea that we've actually come from the sea human beings belong in the sea we can return to the sea and when we do it's going to be a peaceful paradise there there are our mansions under the sea that have been prepared for us where we are going to know peace we can get we can escape from this world we can escape from this chaos we can escape from this noise as well and I think these issues, having the narrator be an investigating jur- investigative journalist, is a great updating to the uh, occult detective or you know academic that's investigating whatever is the case in weird fiction story. Uh, I read it more as a reality effect, but the more I think about this story, the more I think she's looking at the interplay of uh, state actors and nation states going to war with one another alongside the confusion of non-state actors that are the terrorist organizations and cells that are carrying out their attacks on behalf of nothing, maybe on behalf of a belief system. And all of this is caught up with uh, industry and global capitalism. And she's also interested in you know the associated oil spill of, of 1924, the fire of the Del Mar canning factory, Way people just throw their garbage basically out the windows of their car. I mean, the, 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 all the brand names are, are fast that she uses in, in this section of the story when the narrator goes to the warehouse are all fast food places. And it's just garbage and litter of these 
places where not only we have a warehouse that's out of use, that's broken down, that nobody uses anymore, except it's misuse as a temple that's destroyed whatever land could have been there, whatever use the land could have been. I mean, you can't go back to using that land for anything else. And not only that, that broken downness of the warehouse is also caught up in people not respecting that area at all, the destruction of the environment. And this is basically the 2000s with the global war on terror, uh, the fear of state actors going to war with one another, the uh, Al Gore inconvenient truth like environmentalism, global warming is really becoming a major hot button issue at this time. Uh, the effects of industrialization and globalization on second and third world countries, the and the way that Americans uh, just are concerned perhaps more about the loss of profits of big companies than what they're actually doing in the world. And all of these things are kind of working together in the minds, in the collective unconscious maybe of the American people, maybe of the whole West as well. Uh, this is, and we get all this information through the news, but what is our experience of it directly? What is our contact with the world except through these mediated forms? And how can we even trust the information we're given? It's it's just a really complicated, true-to-life sense of the chaotic nature of this time period of the mid-2000s. You could describe this religious cult as a response to realizing that we're actually living in the cyberpunk dystopia that was envisioned in the 1980s. Uh, <laughs> but it's all right, because we can actually just walk into the ocean and, and live at the bottom of the ocean and, and escape this cyberpunk dystopia. We can just opt out of it and return to the sea and live in these mansions that have been prepared for us. Well, let's just hone in then on this speech on the promise that Jacoba is giving her followers and, and think about what this cult is really up to in the midst of this cultural upheaval and chaos. I'm going to reread this speech. You read it in the recap episode. She says, we can't remember where it began, where we began. We can't remember, of course. We can't remember. And they don't want us to even try. They're afraid. And in their fear, they cling desperately to the darkness of their ignorance. They would have us do the same. And then we would never recall the garden nor the gate, would never look upon the faces of the great fathers and mothers who have returned to the deep. And this, I think, ties pretty closely in with the quote that we get from the Velikovsky book that we get in section five of this story, which is this, human beings rising from some catastrophe, bereft of memory of what had happened, regarded themselves as created from the dust of the earth. All knowledge about the ancestors, who they were, and in what interstellar space they lived, was wiped away from the memory of a few survivors. The, the interplay of these two quotes is really fascinating in this story, because it's almost like Jakova is cribbing from uh, Velikovsky here, that she's saying almost the exact same thing, but throwing in some Christian references, namely the garden and the gate, which the garden is the paradise that was made for humans in the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, and the gate is what kept them from returning to it once they were expelled from the garden, once they had sinned. And she's talking about 
the importance of these cultural memories, these cultural traditions and histories, but then she's tying it in with this maybe new belief that people don't return to heaven, they return to the deep. I'm just wondering what you make of all of this imagery, this combined imagery, especially because it's so similar to the quote we get from Valakovsky. I mean, are we meant to think that Jakova is onto something real or that she's a crazed cult leader stealing from other fringe crackpots? That is the real question. I, I want to point out one more place here. There's another uh, sermon that we we get. There's a flashback scene of Jakova preaching where she says, In the mansions of Poseidon, she will prepare halls from coral and glass and the bones of whales. Down there, you will know nothing but peace in her mansions, in the endless night of her coils. This is uh, another invocation of some some Christian imagery here. This is the, uh, in my father's house, there are, are many mansions bit from the, the Gospel of John uh, that she's drawing on here. So, so a number of parallels that uh, are, are being made. But I think that is the, the question, right? Is she is she just a crazy cult leader? Maybe someone who is trying to manipulate people for her own purpose? Or is all of this real, right? That is, the, that is the question here. I don't have a solid answer. I'm not on solid footing here. And that's actually, I think, one of the real selling points of this story is that there's evidence for both interpretations. We're left wondering, I don't need to come down hard on any side to enjoy this story. I think it would be fun to, and I think that every time I read the story, I would probably change my mind, even if I had come down hard on it. But I think maybe I'll just make the case for, hey, this is actually real. And here are some of the hints we get for it, simply because it will be fun to go through and catalog some of that evidence. So I think one piece of evidence that we certainly have is this weird artifact. It's not real evidence that we have. This uh, this icon of Mother Hydra is we don't, as readers, ever get any kind of objective experience of it. Uh, Jacoba Angevin says that it's very old, but how does she know it's very old, right? What, what's the evidence for its age? We're not given that. Uh, so we can't experience that directly. But that's one piece of evidence that we have. But what I think is actually the more interesting bit of evidence that we have is Jacoba's body. It's these scars that she has, these like sucker marks there. Are these scars that are, are these, are these scars from this incident, this near drowning incident out in the ocean that we learn really just on the last page of this story. Uh, maybe they are, but I couldn't help but wonder if these aren't scars at all, if these are actually just a feature of her body because she herself is actually some kind of hybrid sea creature human, the, the, the sort of thing that we get in The Shadow over Innsmouth. And one of the things that leads me to wondering this is the fact that her father, Theo Angevin, has all sorts of stuff about this in his books. And maybe he is actually also the descendant of sea people. And uh, that this is where these scars come, these things, and this is where these marks that the narrator thinks of as scars come from. Maybe the father is actually aware of this in some way. He's got some access to a family history where he knows this is true. That's definitely something that we get in the shadow over Innsmouth as well. And that's why he does not want Jakova to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist when she's been brought to the hospital after this this near drowning incident. He's trying to keep this from his wife, keep this from Jacoba's mother, something like that. I, I think this is certainly a way that all of this could be read. I I think so too. I read it in a slightly different way, uh, especially with regard to the scars of Jacoba. Um, they're clearly from this event when she was a child. Her father's harder and 
the way the characters of his novels experience horror of the sea and Mother Hydra uh, being a, a figure that is in some of these books. I to me this reads more like a, a changeling story. Like th- there are real creatures under the sea, and Jakova never came back. The child Jakova that we meet in the story is Jakova as a child, you know, preserved forever in this underworld kind of evil fairy. And the one who came back out was not Jakova, but one of these creatures, perhaps. Uh, and the father maybe was aware of this. And we we have a real sense of instability in the home. But we don't really get a sense of how the mother died. But we do know that there's some real distance between the father, Theo, and his daughter, Jakova. And it could be because he doesn't think his daughter is his daughter, uh, but it could also be that he is a he is a high priest in this cult of Dagon as well, <laughs> and his stories, uh, or maybe he's escaped uh, this cult, and his stories are uh, secret attempts to warn people of the existence of this and the dangers of uh, these underwater creatures. Really hard to determine what's real and what's not. It could also be that her father was just obsessed with this stuff, and this is the way that Jacova felt like she could relate to her father. And this is a belated attempt to communicate her love to her father, who she's very distant from, and she's gone crazy and taken it way too far. One of the bits of information that we get about the family history that we, we did not include in the, the recap is that uh, that Theo Angevine grew up on the, the East Coast, but had moved to California in the in the 60s. And it is not from Massachusetts, right? Innsmouth has never mentioned Massachusetts is not mentioned. It's it's the, the family comes from the Mid-Atlantic, the, the Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware area, the, the part of the world that, that we live in. So not a direct connection there, but maybe something, maybe, maybe some nod to that. That. But I do also think that there's something that we should think about with the names of the, the two Angevines who get named in this story, Theo, which means God, and then Jacova, which is Jacob. You mentioned that in the, the recap, but I think that we should think about what Kiernan might actually be doing with those names, right? If we have a character named God and a character named Jacob, uh, Jacob being the son of the character named God, and maybe they're fish people, or maybe they're obsessed with fish people, or or or, or something. How would we how would we take that into how how would we include that into a reading, or how does thinking about that affect our reading of what happened here? Yeah, I. I wasn't sure whether these names have some kind of real symbolic meaning, though naming any character Theo without <laughs> engaging in symbolism <laughs> or illusions is, is a tricky game to play. Uh, but if I were to take these names as, as being important to the symbolic meaning of this story, uh, I would say that they are protectors or inheritors of a completely different tradition than the Christian one, or that the Christian tradition or Jewish tradition of the importance of these characters um, is misremembered. It's misknown, and that, you know, some of the they that Jacoba's referring to in her sermon is the they who don't want to remember the truth behind these stories, that that it was all fish people all the way down. and Everybody crawled out of the ocean. And it's, <laughs> it's very different than what we understand in the traditions we've made out of these tales, out of these stories. What's your sense of that? Well, it's hard not to be thinking of, right, the biblical figure of of Jacob here, the the, the son of 
Isaac, someone who's a patriarch of the Israelites, who is in some sense maybe even like the patriarch of the the, the Israelites, someone who someone who's foundational to the chosen people of God. And I think if we're going to think of God and Jacob here and their relationship in this biblical context and then try to place that in some kind of esoteric order of Dagon context that we get in in this story, I think that that has to be a kind of symbolical representation of Jacoba Angevine as a kind of patriarch, as someone who is actually going to lead the promised people into, or someone who's going to lead the holy people in back to the the promised land in in some sense though you know it's not quite it's not, i mean it's not quite moses here i guess but but thinking about it in those terms that's really that's that's really what the imagery suggested to me i think that makes a lot of sense and i i agree with you it's certainly the certainly the name evokes a promise of a return to the promised land or to uh be able to have all of your needs met without labor. I mean, this is the imagery that she is working with when we get to the the many mansions part of the sermon at the end of the story. I do want to talk about the role that waking Leviathans has in maybe the formation of this cult uh, and, and whether or not you think one, the book is what led to her being a figure if what if you think the book has led to her being this kind of cult leader figure, what we think is in it, and why it had this kind of impact, why we, she was able to amass a following of you know fifty plus people to walk into the ocean, and maybe her own motivation for publishing the book. So, first, we get that. Waking Leviathans is compared to the Velikovsky's book, Worlds in Collision. Uh, we have senses of Joseph Campbell here, Eric Von Tannikin, uh, the Switley Striper site, Unknown Countries, Paranormal Advocate and Investigator. What do you think these works have in common, and, and how do they help you form an image of what Waking Leviathans is? These are all pseudoscience books or pseudo scholarly books, right? These are these are books by people who either don't have scholarly credentials, or uh, in the case of Velikovsky, who actually does, uh, is working in a a field that is not the field in which he is credentialed, meaning not actually an expert in any of these things. Uh, von Daniken wrote his book, The Chariot of the Gods, positing the ancient alien hypothesis when he was actually in prison for like tax evasion for something like that, right? So it's not like he even had access to any kind of information, any kind of uh, primary sources or any kind of scholarly journals or anything like that. And his descriptions of things are just totally wrong. This is is something he totally made up. Uh, Velikovsky, it's a little bit different. Velikovsky was a a trained uh, scholar. He's someone with academic credentials, but then went to work in the field of uh, ancient archaeology and also geology to prove a number of, to try to prove a number of different things about the the age of the earth and also the way that the physics of the planet earth work, things about its uh, rotational axis and the way that it orbits the sun and the way gravity works, things he had no professional training in. And then also uh, ancient archaeology, again, another thing he had no professional training in, but looked at, at numbers, looked at evidence and drew his own conclusions that people with actual training, the actual experts in these fields uh, said are absolutely crazy, are absolutely nonsense. And here's why, right? Here are all the reasons why the conclusions that you're drawing can't possibly make any sense which is simply just to say you don't know how to read 
the data that we work with. You don't know how to read the artifacts that we work with. From a meta perspective, that is definitely the type of thing that Waking Leviathan has to be. But it is interesting, right, that Jakova is a professor, and she's not a fringe scholar. She's at UC Berkeley, which is one of the most prestigious institutions you can that you can work at. Uh, this is one of the, the top 50, maybe even top 30 institutions, research institutions in the world. She's got a job there, uh, clearly has a job there as an assistant professor or some kind of post-grad position, meaning she's gone there more or less straight out of grad school. And so clearly, whatever work she was doing in grad school and wherever she went to grad school, she was perceived by this prestigious institution as being someone with serious promise in whatever field she's working in, which we also don't know, but I think we can presume is is anthropology or or archaeology, which are are very frequently uh, the same department at universities anyway. I, I think they actually are separate at Berkeley. In fact, I'm certain they are because I think classical archaeologists work in the classics department at Berkeley. Uh, but that's a tangent. Someone can tell me that I'm, I'm wrong about the way that UC Berkeley is organized. Uh, but so, the, but so there's definitely the sense that she's a very serious scholar, and also I think that Waking Leviathan is actually a work in her field of expertise. So that's a place where it differs from Velikovsky and Van Doniken, and I think that's one of the layers that Kiernan is working with here to suggest to us that hey, maybe maybe she's onto something here. Yeah, I agree, and and the book has to be about underwater civilizations or i mean leviathans evokes the idea of like giant sea creatures like a kraken or a a dinosaur that's still alive Uh, but i think the direction that the story brings us in is that she is just positing the existence that people came from the sea that that is where their natural home is uh and that there are real gods or leviathans that are conscious, that can conduct life, uh, a conscious life, a rich life full of maybe rituals and religions and things like that under the sea, and there's proof of it. And I I wonder if part of the sort of cover-up of the Monterey Bay uh, Research Institute is hiding the proof, the truth of this book uh, to people because they couldn't have a cult leader be right. And that is maybe some of the tension hidden in the story as well. And that is the other way that we can read this story. I, I was I was pitching before that, hey, maybe the Angevines are, are fish people, right? And that is the plot of The Shadow over Innsmouth, right? And that is one of the stories that Kiernan is working with, one of the Lovecraft stories that Kiernan is drawing on here. But she is also drawing quite a bit on The Call of Cthulhu, which is not about fish people, but is about regular human beings worshiping something that that lives under the ocean and it is about tracing the that the existence of it is about finding the existence of that cult and tracing the eons long history of that cult right of seeing this as actually one of the oldest religions on the planet if not the oldest religion on the planet that has survived in secret through all the religious changes of ancient paganism and even uh, the ancient abrahamic religions the, the, the ancient monotheism that this Cthulhu cult has survived into the present day that's the imagery that Kiernan is drawing on here in this part of the the story where we get Jacova Angevine with this artifact and doing research on Inuit culture that is straight out of the Call of Cthulhu. That is something that is directly taken from the Call of Cthulhu. And that's the other way of reading the story, right? It's not that she's 
a character in the shadow of Innsmith and is actually half fish person and is discovering that as she ages, but that in fact, she is a scholar who is discovering the existence of this cult, maybe the Cthulhu cult, maybe the Dagon cult, something like that through her own research. And it's a research that owes itself to this traumatic experience that she had as a child where she, whether it was real or not, but she genuinely believes that she encountered sentient beings in the ocean when she had this accident in in the sea, and she's gone and launched this academic career to find somehow, to prove somehow the existence of these people, or at least to look at the way that cultures have dealt with the idea of people living in the sea, of sea people, of fish people, of mermaids, and and so on. Maybe she's an anthropologist there exploring that phenomenon. And she's come across this artifact, this icon of Mother Hydra, and that her research has ceased to become academic and and has now become religious for her, that she's not merely interested in the anthropology or the archaeology of this, the long history of this, but has become converted to this religion, this cult that she thinks that she has discovered and now wants to get back there herself, that she's come to believe what this religion believes and is going to take action about it, right? That's the Call of Cthulhu version of this story. That's the Call of Cthulhu way of reading this story. I think it's an excellent way of reading this story. I mean, the title Waking Leviathans calls to mind you know, the awakening of the deep ones, the call to right. wake up, right? It's, it is it is maybe a kind of winking allusion to the call of Cthulhu. And maybe her book is her journey to discovering this, uh, the existence of this cult and the, and the belief that they're worshiping a real Leviathan in the ocean, like Cthulhu, you know, something larger than life that could only exist in the ocean, couldn't exist anywhere else couldn't exist anywhere else, but is a deep one, is an old one, is one of the ancient gods. And that title of that book really calls that to mind. And if we're reading the story as taking place in a world where Lovecraft didn't exist, uh, this is that. This Waking Leviathans is that text. Also, we were just talking about the event that defined Jacova's life. You know, is she a fist is she a fish person? Is she uh, now a devout worshiper of Cthulhu or whomever, be- Mother Hydra, really, uh, because of this event in her childhood? What do you make of this origin story of her childhood? Uh, I, you know, I've already stated on multiple occasions, and I don't want to belabor it, that to me it reads as a kind of changeling story um, that she is maybe an old one or or a siren or a mermaid or something like that. Uh, and that not only are her beliefs true and credible, um, but that uh, Jacova died in the ocean and the ghost of Jacova that the narrator sees in the warehouse is trapped, is really a true ghost that is trapped by Mother Hydra that somehow shares experiences with the person who came out of the water and became Jacova on some level. It's a reading of the story I like just because circles and stones remind me of fairy tales. But um, <laughs> but I, I just want to get your sense of Jacova's origin story and you know maybe what you think of her father being so uh, ornery about the ocean. I guess we are presenting three different ways of looking at this story. And one of the things we've not really been talking about is the the videotape, right? But that is one of the artifacts that we have in this story. 
and this videotape that shows Jacoba Antovine as a, a fish person living at the bottom of the, the ocean, living in Monterey Canyon, and that this is from the day before she leads the cult into the ocean. We haven't talked about the veracity of this videotape, right? Whether we think that this is is really on the tape or if the uh, robotics technician has faked this just to make money or something like that, right? He's been in the, you know, he's been using this to to profit in the aftermath of the sensationalism of uh, reporting on this suicide cult, which is, I think, a possibility. But if we take it at face value, and I think we have been so far, then we are dealing with a world in which there are fish people of some sort. So the question is then, in what way is Jacoba Angevine a fish person? Is the Jacoba Angevine that we know in this story, the human being who was born to Theo Angevine and uh, I don't know, whatever his wife's name is, maybe we got it in the story, but I have forgotten if we did, and simply always was part fish person. Uh, That's one reading. I think that's the Shadow Over Innsmouth reading of this. Uh, another reading is uh, Jacoba, where Jacoba Angevine has simply discovered that all Homo sapiens originated in the sea or are descendants of fish people in some way. And we actually have a real biological capability to walk into the ocean and just live there. And, you know, that we can actually breathe underwater, uh, that this is something our bodies are capable of. And she has, on faith, done this and 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 succeeded. That's another way of reading the story. And then there's the way that you're reading the story, which is this changeling reading of the story in which, yeah, there are human beings, there are homo sapiens, and then there also are sea people, uh, mermaids or, or fish people or whatnot living in, in the ocean. And one of them has been sent to the surface to live masquerading as a, a real person, uh, maybe wittingly, maybe unwittingly, uh, that this happened at the moment of this uh, this accident in the ocean, that the accident was that the, the real Jacoba Angevine was taken and replaced with, uh, you know, uh, not a fairy, but a mermaid, right, as a sort of changeling story. I think that all of these are viable, and I'm not sure which of them I prefer. Yeah, I agree. And there's also a, a fourth reading that we mentioned briefly, which is that None of this Jacova stuff is true. The universe is like ours, which is to say mundane and not enchanted. And that the story the narrator is trying to tell, the most plausible story he's trying to tell about these events that he thinks he can sell to a newspaper is uncovering trauma in Jacova's past, relating it to maybe a cold father. And this is an overcompensation for a bad childhood that drove her insane as she got older. That's another reading of the story. That's the one the narrator, I think, is trying to tell when he's wearing his journalist hat, but he can't because he doesn't believe that that's true. Right. I think that's the hint that we get at the end is that he has come around to believing that the things Jacoba Angevine is saying in her sermons uh, were and in her books are, are true. And I, you know, that's really, for me, that's a huge amount of the fun of this story is that we get so little of what Jacoba Angevine believes, right? If we actually had a copy of Waking Leviathan, if we even maybe had a, the long text, the complete text of just one of her sermons, uh, we would be better able to piece all of this together. But that's not what we're going to get in this story. It's not what we get in this story. We just get 
hints and clues, and we have to figure out, we have to try to discover what the narrator actually knows about this story, and we have to try to figure out what he comes to believe in the end. And it could be any of these options, and probably options we haven't thought of, though I'm sure our, our listeners will think of, of many, and, and hopefully come to the forum or our, our, our subreddit and, and tell us about these, because I would, I would love to hear more theories about what's going on here. Well, I just have one more question to wrap up our conclusion, which is about the narrator. What fate do you think is going to befall the narrator after he closes his laptop after typing all this stuff out? Oh, he's 100% about to go walk into the ocean. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) He is not long for this world. I mean, he is unraveling rapidly. And I think he even knows that he's not going to uh, be welcomed into the loving arms of Mother Hydra, but it doesn't <laughs> matter. He He's going to share the same fate or something like the fate of the guy who, who was selling those videotapes. Yeah, the the guy who was selling those videotapes, that's someone we haven't talked about either. This is a, obviously, it was not a suicide, right? He was killed by somebody. And I think there are, well, certainly there are many possible somebodies who have killed him. Uh, this is an element that I saw in the Call of Cthulhu part of this story, rather than the Shadow over Innsmouth reading of this story, that this that a big part of the, the Call of Cthulhu is the fact that anyone who's not a member of the cult who learns about the cult, or even anything kind of tangential to it, is killed by the, the cult in a, in a violent way, at, you know, a stabbing uh, or something like that. And so this guy's death here called that to mind. But hey, it may be that someone has come out of the sea, that a you know mermaid, a fish person has come out of the sea to kill this guy. Yeah, and we don't know what kind of rituals require human sacrifice or what's going on. And if the father knew this, and that's why he didn't want to to have his daughter seek psychological help because uh, she might reveal something about his conditioning her to be taken underwater. <laughs> we just don't know. The story is so drenched in wonderful mystery, but there's so much story here that the solution doesn't matter. What's fun is sitting in the mystery. So I hope that you who are listening have read this story and have enjoyed it as much as we have. And we do hope you'll join us on the forums. But on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. And as always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And what we have talked a lot about two of the major works of H.P. Lovecraft in this story, The Shadow Over Innsmouth and The Call of Cthulhu. And so I'll remind people that we have decided that we are going to do The Call of Cthulhu when we reach 100 reviews of Elder Sign. So if that is a story that you would like us to cover and you have not yet written a review of Elder Sign, wherever you get your podcast, we'd like to encourage you to do that because, well, frankly, I would like to go cover The Call of Cthulhu now as well. Uh, We also want to thank our Patreon supporters again. Next time, in fact, we're going to be back with a special bonus episode that was commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. Valerie Hoagland, my co-host from Lower Decks, our Star Trek podcast, is joining me to talk about mental health in weird fiction. We're going to be revisiting some Algernon Blackwood and some Thomas Ligotti. Uh, It was a really great conversation, and uh, we hope that we will see you there. And then after that, we'll have our regularly scheduled episode, which is going to be some H.P. Lovecraft. We're going to be doing his very early story, The Alchemist. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell.